This week, Diamond Offshore Drillings files for Chapter 11, Revlon closes in on a new revolver, Valeris considering restructuring, including equitization. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Stick around for an interview with Squire Patton Boggs' partner, Carol Denniston, on how companies and municipalities can manage liquidity before and after filing for Chapter 11. It's Sunday, May 3rd. Diamond Offshore Drilling became the first large drilling rig contractor to file for Chapter 11 in the wake of the crude collapse and the COVID-19 crisis. As the Houston-based company and 14 affiliated debtors on Sunday filed petitions in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas. The company is 53% owned by Lowe's Corp. The debtors stated in their first day pleadings that they determined to commence the Chapter 11 cases to preserve their contract backlog of $1.4 billion and to preserve their approximately $434.9 million in unrestricted cash on hand while avoiding annual interest expense of approximately $140.1 million under the revolving credit facility and senior notes. The debtors state that almost all customers have requested some form of concession under their existing contracts. Management said the debtors have, quote, effectively managed these demands to preserve the contract backlog by entering into amendments to certain contracts, negotiating standby arrangements to cover the company's costs while rigs are subject to travel restrictions, and implementing various operational and logistical policies and responses to ensure the continued operation of the rigs in response to the COVID-19 crisis. However, according to the first day filings, one customer, Beach Energy, has, quote, sought to formally terminate its agreement with Diamond. The debtors have filed an adversary proceeding against Beach. Counsel for the debtors said at the first day hearing that, although the debtors are hopeful that Beach will withdraw its termination, The debtors were seeking an order confirming the application of an automatic stay intended to, among other things, prevent customers from taking action similar to Beach. At the first day hearing, the ad hoc committee of unsecured bondholders holding about 50% of the company's unsecured bonds indicated that it is ready to, quote, substantially equitize its debt and, quote, move forward quickly towards plan. The ad hoc committee disclosed that it has put together a term sheet that it will send to the debtors this week. Counsel to the ad hoc group stated that the parties will also be discussing the appropriate amount of capital the company will need to, quote, not only survive post-Chapter 11, but also, quote, take advantage of opportunities in the industry that may come about in the near and medium term. The ad hoc committee said it would be willing to provide such capital if necessary. Revlon closed on a new $65 million revolver on Thursday, which is said would be used to increase liquidity amid the pandemic, according to sources. Commitments to the facility, which was issued under the $1.7 billion term loan credit agreement, were provided by certain term lenders backstopping the company's proposed refinancing up to $100 million originally. According to an 8K file later in the week, Products Corporation borrowed $63.5 million of revolving loans under the incremental facility. The commitments in respect to the incremental facility terminate on September 7, 2021, subject to a springing maturity 91 days prior to the maturity date of Product Corporation's 5.75% senior notes due 2021. If on such date, any of the 5.75% senior notes remain outstanding and certain liquidity requirements are not satisfied. Outstanding amounts under the facility will bear interest at the rate of LIBOR plus 16%. 
On April 27th, Products Corporation entered into an amendment and restatement to the binding commitment letter dated as of April 14, 2020, with certain financial institutions that are lenders under the credit agreement. Revlon warned in an April 23rd letter, which was reviewed by Reorg to law firm Arnold and Porter, counseled to a group of term lenders that opposed a proposing refinancing amendment that any attempt to prohibit the company's incurrence of revolving loans under its 2016 term loan credit agreement would be, quote, tortuous interference with contract. Revlon's counsel, Paul Weiss, said in the correspondence that the cosmetics company is entitled to establish revolving commitments and borrow revolving loans under the 2016 term loan credit agreement. Polaris announced on Thursday with its first quarter results that it is evaluating alternatives to address its capital structure, including, quote, a comprehensive debt restructuring that may require a substantial conversion of our indebtedness to equity. The company said it expects to record negative cash flows through the remainder of the year due to COVID-19 and depressed energy prices. On a call to discuss the order, CEO Tom Burke disclosed that, quote, most of our customers have asked for some kind of change to current contract arrangements. Four contracts have been canceled, while, quote, several others have been modified, he said, while demand for new contracts has fallen over 50% for the past month, with fewer than half anticipated to lead to new work. Restructuring talks were previously reported by Reorg. The company disclosed in its 10Q that the agent under its revolving credit facility has reserved the right to assert a material adverse effect, quote, based on changes in the oil market and certain company-specific operating incidents. While Valeris stated that it does not believe an MAA has occurred, the company notes, quote, there can be no assurance that the lenders will not assert a material adverse effect as a basis to deny further borrowing requests. There was $332.1 million outstanding on the revolving credit facility with $1.3 billion of undrawn capacity as of March 31st. Management declined to take questions after its earning call, citing the sensitivity of restructuring discussions and directed inquiries to its financial advisor, Lazard. The company also outlined plans to preserve stack three drill ships, a semi-submersible, and five jackups, expecting annual savings of $50 million. CapEx for 2020 was reduced to $120 million, a 25% cut from prior estimates. First quarter 2020 revenue fell 10.8% year-over-year, and the company reported adjusted EBITDA fell to negative $39.7 million. Free cash flow in the quarter was negative $204.4 million. Polaris ended the quarter with $1.5 billion of liquidity, inclusive of $184.9 million in cash and $1.3 billion in revolver availability. Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and all other U.S. territories are excluded from the Federal Reserve's expanded municipal liquidity facility, which will offer up to $500 billion in lending to states and municipalities to help manage cash flow stresses caused by the coronavirus pandemic. According to an updated MLF term sheet and FAQs issued by the central bank on Monday, eligible issuers are required to have an investment-grade credit ratings as of April 8th. Insolvent issuers are banned from participating. The MLF, as revised, will purchase up to $500 million of short-term notes issued by U.S. states, including the District of Columbia, U.S. counties with a population of at least 500,000 residents, and U.S. cities with a population of at least 250,000 residents. The new population thresholds allow substantially more entities to borrow directly from the MLF than the initial plan announced on April 9th, the Fed said in a press release. 
On Tuesday, PROMISA Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Jarasco presented a repayment plan for municipalities to reimburse the Commonwealth for the $66 million shortfall related to the PAYGO and health plan expenditures as a result of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's April 15th ruling that the Law 29 is unenforceable and of no effect. The Title III Court delayed the effect of its ruling nullifying Law 29 through May 6 to allow the municipalities, the Oversight Board, and the government time to work together in an effort to come up with another solution to the issues posed by Law 29. The Oversight Board is also proposing allotting $148 million in Commonwealth funds for a liquidity facility to help municipalities bridge revenue lags stemming from the COVID-19 emergency. Borrowed money would be recouped through the property tax revenue, the collection of which has been deferred by the Municipal Revenue Collection Center. On a call with reporters, Jurasco discussed the potential impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment and said that work to revise the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan to adjust for its economic impact should be completed by July 1st, along with an approved fiscal 2021 budget. Asked if there is expected to be less money for the bondholder recoveries in the Commonwealth Debt Adjustment Plan as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic's economic impact, Jareska said that the Oversight Board has yet to go, quote, that far down the road, but she says she expects a long recovery period for the global economy. On Wednesday, U.S. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley stated in a press release that Governor Wanda Vasquez failed to provide all the information he requested regarding concerns he raised about, quote, questionable contracts and potentially wasted COVID-19 relief money and vowed to continue to press for transparency on these issues. Grassley emphasized that his petition to the governor was based on, quote, widespread public reports regarding contracts for COVID-19 test kits with companies with reportedly no relevant experience but connections to political leaders, mismanagement of health and relief supplies, and a wave of resignations by key health officials, among other issues. Other top stories were... Kirkland and Ellis organizes April 29th call for Herd's 2021-2023 bondholders to discuss possible group debt restructuring. SM Energy announces unsecured for secured exchange offers, consent solicitations for all outstanding notes, borrowing base redetermined down to $1.1 billion, cuts 2020 CapEx guidance by 20%. AMC responds to Universal Studios' comments on direct-to-home release says going forward it will not license any Universal movies on these terms. Now, here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Raksha. Greetings all. This week will be much like last week, just a lot more of it. Again, I'd like to encourage you all to refer to our Ford Weekly, released early every Monday morning, a variable cornucopia of items of interest to the over-caffeinated, under-rested, stressed-out restructuring professional few things to highlight for you. Monday, May 4th, Status Conference in Dean Foods and Mission Cole. Tuesday, May 5th, I'd like to congratulate the Mexican Army for their victory over the French at the Battle of Puebla in 1862. Besides that, there's a first day hearing in Cinemax, Status Conference in Sanchez, a motion to compel hearing in approach, and a motion to dismiss hearing in pace. Did I mention there's earnings this week? Well, there are. Today includes Vista, Diebold, Transdime, and Mattel. And more interesting, perhaps, the Texas Railroad Commission is meeting to consider the motion by Parsley Energy and Pioneer Natural Resources related to proration of oil production in Texas. 
If I was y'all, I'd keep an eye on the June WTI contract, which expires on May 19th. If there haven't been enough curtailments to take the pressure off storage of Cushion or the Gulf Coast, that contract could trade negative, just like May's. Some of us down here have a pool going on if, when, and by how much. Let me know if you want in. Wednesday, May 6th, second day hearing in Quorum and Whiting, stay relief hearing in McDermott. Earnings, we have Clear Channel, Navios Marine, Laredo Petroleum, and SM Energy. Thursday, May 7th, CBA rejection hearing in Murray Energy, disclosure and unity settlement hearing in Windstream. And earnings, APX, ADT, iHeart, Gulfport and Comstock, and how about that rally in the natural gas names, all of that associated gas disappearing from the Permian and the Bakken. Friday, May 8th, another Dean Foods hearing, a DS hearing in Fury, and earnings from GTT. A friend of mine in the Netherlands has a band called GTT, so that always throws me a bit. Also, SeaWorld, Unity, and a bunch of earnings calls. And last but not least, this week's Sir Humphrey Davenport Award for the best sentence in legal filing goes to the Windstream UCC's objection to the Unity Settlement. And a quote, Cloaked in the guise of fair settlement value to the debtor's estates, Unity negotiated the Unity equity component with one goal in mind, obtaining support from within the debtor's capital structure for releases. Cloaked in the guise of fair settlement value. That is but one of many expertly crafted sentences throughout this motion from the firm of Morrison and Forster. Well done and thank you all. And that's all from me. Back to everybody in New York. Now here's our very own Mark Fisher with Squire Patton Boggs partner Carol Denniston on managing liquidity. So I am pleased to welcome Carol Denniston, partner at Squire Patton Boggs, with me here today. Carol uh, has certainly seen her fair amount of work during past distress cycles, working in England and Europe on a variety of distress transactions, including the 2008 commercial paper collapse and Lehman. She also represented the largest unsecured, unsecured creditor in GM. Carol has deep experience working with all asset types, including real estate, intellectual property, regulated industries, including utilities, oil and gas, gaming, and nonprofits. Carol has been working with distressed government uh, governmental entities since 2009 and has represented cities, special districts, indenture trustees, bondholders, taxpayers, and monoline insurers in a variety of municipal restructuring engagements. Carol has been a mediator since 1992 and has said that through negotiation and mediation, parties can often reach resolutions that are much better than those imposed by a court. So, Carol, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, today. This is certainly uh, an active time, both uh, pre-petition and post-petition, so I know our subscribers are going to really enjoy hearing your insights. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks. So let's get let's just jump right in. Um, and I wanted to start pre-petition. Uh, let's start with the private sector. I, I know you have experience in both the private and the public sector, but let's start on the private sector uh, and then we'll move to the municipalities. But for companies that are facing significant declines in cash flow leading to significant concerns in liquidity, what would your advice be, particularly how to deal with their obligations? Well, a couple of things. And, and let's start with the one that, that we've got a, a, a pretty active market in, and that is both the lenders and the companies are regularly negotiating standstills um, and forbearance agreements and reluctant to call formal uh, notices or events of default. And the reason that everybody is being careful right now is that it's not clear when the economy is gonna return to any sense of normalcy and rather than run the risk of losing uh, value, uh, the the first uh, 
game out of the box, if you will, is to negotiate the, the forbearance agreements, the standstills, and that's become a pretty normal transaction for us. Um, and that's with the lenders. The same kind of conversation is, has been reported is going on between um, distressed companies and their landlords in terms of asking for concessions, whether it's rent abatement or putting, you know, putting uh, unpaid rent for this year into next year or potentially at the end of the lease or getting abatement and agreeing to extend the lease. There's any number of uh, formulas that are going into place to reduce the, the landlord cost. I think everybody recognizes from suppliers to landlords to creditors of distressed entities right now that there is no liquidity and it's really not a useful proposition to have a legal fight over who gets what when there's really no what there. I mean, there's there's nothing to distribute. So the idea has been to put it in, in sort of a standing pattern under a standstill and then to uh, hopefully figure out when we might be able to begin to figure out how to address uh, the, 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 the distress and that's completely determined by what happens with the economy. And you mentioned uh, both leases, le- lessors and um, lenders as well. Are, um, are conversations different with landlords uh, versus with a lender? Yeah, I think they are because they, they each have sort of different objectives and, and both of them have a lot at stake. Um, I think that uh, the the bottom line issue is the same as if a company's not operating, it's not generating cash, so it doesn't have anything to pay its obligations. That's essentially the same, but the long-term uh, issues regarding default, what can happen in the event of a default are, are pretty different from, a, say, a secured lender versus a landlord. Um, I think that the secured lender's big picture is how do I get out of this or can I get out of this or can I rework it so that I don't get, um, have to have to take significant losses. Uh, the, the landlord perspective from the, the company and potentially the lender may be, do we need all this space? And if we don't need this space, then that's a different discussion with landlord. Uh, we have seen um, in a lot of uh, situations with our clients where landlord uh, landlords have been willing, depending on uh, their location and the type of property, to reach agreements in terms of trying to provide relief to commercial tenants. Um, and as I said, I think the lenders, it's a much bigger picture, particularly for the secured lenders, because the concern is they need to have a viable and operating entity um, in order to recover uh, on the debt or even to restructure the debt. So I think their issues are probably broader and deeper than those of the landlord. And um, what are some of the things that you're advising companies on in terms of finding value, finding other sources of liquidity? Well, I think that there's a lot of places to look right now for liquidity in the CARES Act and in the the programs that the government's in the process of putting into place. And so Obviously, since we're a policy firm, in addition to everything else we do, we're closely tied to what's available uh, for for lenders. Uh, we're also uh, watching the changing landscape in terms of who qualifies for what government loans and supports. But in the first instance, one of the things we talked with, both in terms of our lender clients and our borrower clients, is how do you look to see whether you qualify for aid and how can we help you apply for the loans or the grants that are being made available. 
um, I think that's that's an obvious first step. Um, and then I think that we blogged at the beginning of the COVID crisis on the steps that folks needed to be taking, primarily from a company perspective, anticipating that lenders were going to need information. And that's the importance of trying to figure out how much more money you need over what period of time. Uh, because if your business has been shut down due to the uh, shelter in place orders, you've got a cash flow crisis that wasn't put into any of your projections or any of your business planning. So the takeaway there is the first and, and foremost rule of any kind of restructuring process is conserve cash and then figure out um, through a, a formal projection process, which is at this point in the game, a best guess, but figure out your best guess in terms of how much cash you're going to need um, until the, you know, your business is able to resume and then what it's going to take to get the business back up and running because there's an embedded cost in that. And I think that the thing that we've talked with lenders and borrowers about is there's a huge need to be transparent. Uh, nobody expects the projections to be right on point. We're all doing the best we can in a really uncertain situation. But if you want to avoid ending up with a huge loss of value, your better course is to do the best you can, be candid with the lender as to what you're likely to need. And then you can begin to look at what options uh, might be there. Great. And let's, um, let's, let's stay Pre, um, pre any sort of restructuring, but switch over to municipalities. Um, what would your advice be any different uh, when talking to a municipality facing a cash crunch? In the first instance, no. And I've just looked at a bunch of materials that were produced in California in connection with the municipalities' cash flow problems. Uh, those problems are, are severe, and I think you're seeing some of that play out in Congress and particularly the conversations about uh, state bankruptcy and who gets what in terms of what municipalities are going to be entitled to get aid. And we've seen a softening of that and a broadening of the municipalities that will be able to get aid in terms of more, the, the, it's been expanded to include smaller municipalities than were initially included. The, the difficulty for municipalities, in, and I think the advice is the same, you still have to figure out how much cash you need based on what you're missing, is that they have the same projection issue because those that, they, they depend on sales tax and use tax and that hotel tax and, and tax from uh, any kind of um, stadium or entertainment. All of those things are essentially gone. The only tax that has increased has been sales tax on groceries, and that's not anywhere close to make up for what's missing. Um, and a lot of these guys are going to, on the municipal front, are going to miss their numbers completely um, in terms of uh, their budgets. And that's a huge shock to the system for municipality because their projections are usually very stable year to year. And now all of a sudden we have a circumstance where they can't rely on um, any projections and they've got to backfill for cash. And that's why the discussion about what Congress is going to be prepared to do for municipalities has become so important. So as, um, you know, March, um, you know, went to April and April goes to May and, you know, to the extent people continue to think that we're in, you know, perhaps the early innings um, of this, 
what realistically does a forbearance, um, you know, period buy these companies? And did the conversations change, um, you know, as if we move into um, the later spring or summer months and we're still in a similar position? Yeah, it does. And I think that's why we've been really careful with our clients on both sides to um, advise that initial forbearance period should be short and the requirements should be light. Uh, we we typically ask on the lender side for financial and operating information and other things that might be unique to a transaction that we need to know about, particularly if it's a healthcare entity. Um, on the borrower side, I think that there's the opportunity for the conversation with the lender about what information is it going to take to figure this out, whatever this ultimately turns out to be. But keeping the initial period short, making sure that there's a good faith relationship developing on both sides of the table is really important. But as things change and as we get more information, as more government money is made available through one part of the CARES Act or CARES Act Two, which is coming or through the infrastructure uh, program, the takeaway there is that the content of the standstills and forbearance is likely to change in terms of putting requirements on people to begin to take advantage of what might be out there um, and trying to find out what, if any, problems they're going to have accessing uh, the government funds. Uh, And that in and of itself is a whole kettle of fish because we know that uh, borrowers are being asked to certify things that the Treasury keeps changing its mind as to what its guidance is going to be. So we're all kind of like playing it on a day-to-day basis, recognizing that on some level, we all wake up in a new world every morning in terms of what Treasury has said, what Congress is talking about, and what our folks actually need to protect their collateral and their business value. Uh, So would you like to provide some specific examples of companies or municipalities where these uh, discussions, um, whether it be, uh, you know, during a forbearance period or uh, some other uh, time was able to avoid uh, bankruptcy or restructuring altogether? Well, I think that I could say that that as a, a bankruptcy lawyer, my goal has always been to try to keep people out of bankruptcy, recognizing that it's a necessary business tool that when appropriately used, doesn't have to gut the business in terms of fees and expenses. But right now, we're trying to structure things so that people aren't pushed into a situation where they have to file. Um, And I think that there are circumstances, and we're going to see more and more of them as time goes on, where there really isn't anything other than to file a bankruptcy so that the business has the protection of the automatic stay. Uh, people that are, you know, there are many desperate people in terms of the need for cash because everybody's access to liquidity has been horribly damaged. So as people need cash, they begin to do a couple of things. They look to litigation and they look to enforce rights and they look to reallocate risk and loss. So there's going to be a, a component of cases that we would normally hope not to be in bankruptcy or have to fall by necessity because they need to have the protection, the automatic stay. Um, and that's why we blogged on the, uh, the, a couple of the cases that talk about put the case into a deep sleep because it prevents the struggling entity to have to defend itself across the board when it can have the benefit of the automatic stay. So that is something that's new and, and part of a uh, playbook that 
we probably would never have had to think seriously about for as many companies as we do. Um, most of the time you'll look to see if there's a problem that's gonna put enough pressure to put a company in bankruptcy. And historically, we've filed lots of things to get the protection of the automatic stay, but here I think in particularly come fall, we're gonna see many companies need the protection of the automatic stay and not really have a good idea as to how they're gonna get out of bankruptcy. Um, and that's, that's, that's true for the small and mid-sized companies. Of course, the larger companies that have access to uh, more, more capital to work with is gonna be a different uh, situation, but our small and mid-sized businesses are gonna be challenged to try to stay out of bankruptcy for the long run. And nobody, I think, is gonna be willing with the exception of the government under the various programs uh, being offered under the CARES Act and CARES Act II that's coming, nobody's gonna be willing to put debt into a company at this point, uh, given the uncertainty in terms of when does the economy come back? Is the company gonna be able to you know, open and perform and at what level? Because it's open question. I mean, even if you look at what's going on with the uh, uh, lifting of the shelter, the uh, shelter at home uh, orders, people aren't coming back online at 100%. It's not like we're going to flick a switch and all of a sudden everybody's going to be back to work and the companies operate uh, like they typically do. Great. So that's, I think that's um, a good transition to bankruptcy, um, if, uh, if if the case may be. So you described a, a, a deep sleep. Um, can you just talk about for companies that are entering bankruptcy where there's not a plan um, in place, what exactly is a deep sleep? What are other options that you would recommend for companies and how do they change uh, depending on what sector you're in? Well, I think that you got to look at those companies that come in that have had conversations and a reasonable amount of disclosure with their creditors uh, and their stakeholders and that everybody's sort of uh, they may not be happy about the situation, but at least they understand why the bankruptcy filing is needed. That's going to be one kind of case. Um, and that kind of case is probably going to hang together better uh, because there's been some consensus building before the case is filed. Um, and I think what we're going to see there is the company move through a process to try to identify the best business exit. When I talk about deep sleep, I talk about the cases where We've got people that want to push the debtor one way or another in terms of the rights they might have under the bankruptcy code um, and be aggressive about things like leases and the like, the other things that, that happen like deadlines for exclusivity and the like. Pushing the debtor is likely hard and this un uncertain uh, economic environment is likely to have a, a very bad effect on ultimate value and what the plan looks like coming out. So on one level, while we may see more filings, the cases that are gonna be the easiest are the ones where people have been working together on a consensual basis to figure out how to uh, increase value as opposed to how to carve up a pie because carving up the pie in this circumstance is gonna be worse than it would have been uh, in, in the environment before uh, the virus. And I, I think that's a lesson that everybody's looking at. Uh, we're also seeing we're also seeing filings where companies don't have liquidity and don't really have a good long-term plan, but they're saying things in their first day orders like, okay, we might do this or we might do that. And that might be a debt to equity swap 
or it might be a bankruptcy sale under 363. So we're seeing what we call toggles uh, in the first day declarations because they don't really have an exit hammered out yet. Uh, those cases that are able to get sufficient dip financing have got a much better shot at putting something together. But if you're a supplier to a company that has got a toggle in there, you have to wonder, uh, am I at risk? Uh, because if it's a debt to equity swap, you, you can pretty much assume that management's gonna change in some form or fashion. And the same thing's true if there's a sale. So the uncertainty that gets created for customers and suppliers in a situation where you can expect a lot of um, questions about what kind of plan is actually gonna be implemented when it's one that you could say is to be negotiated. Um, I think creates a, a process that could be long and expensive. Yeah, and that's really interesting on the the vendor side because you know, of course, debtors should think about all sorts of you know all forms of uh, where credit you know creditors financing where you know that money is coming from. So you have to satisfy a lot of uh, you know different needs. So you know that brings us to to retail. Um, Models is is one that I guess it's in a, a deep sleep right now. Um, could you explain? what, um, you know, what, what they're doing. And then there's been some other cases as well. Um, you know, let's talk about, um, forever 21, for instance, where their deep sleep is a little bit, um, different, um, or is not going according to what they had asked for. Yeah. I think that on one hand you have a, a, a reasonable night's rest on the other, you have sort of some nightmares. The, the contrast is the, the, whether or not you've got everybody on board with what you're trying to do and how long, you think it's going to take and and models you know with a, a limited amount of opposition is basically taking an approach that if we don't have to make a decision today we'd like to put it off till we have more information um, and can do something that reflects the business environment that we're operating in the forever 21 case is a tough case um, it's been a tough case from the get-go in terms of how it got filed and the uh, uh, number of leases that they have and the fact that there's really no business there to reorganize and the issue that you see happening there are the landlords saying do something I want my lease because they realize that the long-term proposition for this is probably slim and none um, and that only a very few stores if any are ultimately going to be open once Forever 21 finishes its process so it's not a case where folks are traveling, hopefully, whereas I think the Models case is situated differently. Um, and let's let's talk about municipalities. Uh, you know, of, of course, there's a debate about whether or not municipalities, um, you know, should restructure um, or or not, or particularly on the government side. You, know, um, you mentioned, but um, municipalities in general, um, what are the prospects uh, for municipalities in restructuring? And um, you know, again, how do they, or is there such a thing as a, a deep sleep um, for uh, for a municipality? Well, here's the thing about municipalities is that culturally, and this comes through a lack of political will, municipalities don't really want to be in any kind of bankruptcy, whether you're talking about a city or a county or a district, and the states certainly don't want to be uh, in, in bankruptcy because of the risk involved bringing a federal bankruptcy judge in to make decisions about things that have typically been left to the states. And it's a really muddy situation in terms of the provisions in the bankruptcy code that say 
you know, you can't do anything in a bankruptcy that would violate state law. And while that seems to be a simple statement, it's not as easy to put into place once you're operating in the bankruptcy code and you've got the overlay of the code that says these are the things you can do. Uh, the reasons that most bankruptcies get filed from a municipal perspective is because of cash and because of the need to rewrite contracts, because that's the only thing that really makes a uh, bankruptcy attractive from a municipal perspective. And the only place that we can renegotiate, rewrite contracts over people's objection are in bankruptcy court. Um, so if you look at the analysis that a municipal goes down, they're like, do we really want the brain damage of having a bankruptcy judge who doesn't, there aren't many judges that are familiar with the process. Uh, and we've had some really terrific judges uh, involved. Um, you know, the, if you think about Detroit and Jefferson County, you think about San Bernardino, Stockton, all of those judges were good with the process, understood the tensions, but the takeaway there is the political will to file a bankruptcy is first thing, and they usually have to be in a situation where there is no other option. Um, the second thing is the political will to rewrite contracts and which contracts they choose to rewrite, and we've got some really interesting history on what gets rewritten in a municipal restructuring. And we have that from all the cases I just named and uh, what's going on in Puerto Rico under PROMESA. But the, the takeaway there is, I always say to everybody, be careful what you ask for because the couple markets aren't any big fan of municipal bankruptcy uh, any more than the, the municipal entities. Um, and the reason for that is that it's been easier to rewrite bondholders contracts than it is to rewrite pension contracts, which is the legacy cost of pensions is in large part what drives cash flow problems because at the bottom, the municipals have to provide health care, health and safety and welfare services. That means there's a requirement to provide police and fire. So it's really a difficult thing to turn around and say, I'm filing bankruptcy. And oh, by the way, those of you that are current police and fire, you're gonna get a new deal. That happened in Stockton in terms of actual wages. But in exchange for that in Stockton, they said, we'll leave your retirement alone. And then you have a whole other group out there that is very close to the existing group of police and fire, because remember, they're all part of the same union. You have the retirees who are incredibly powerful politically. So the challenge with, and I think the misnomer of why any municipality should file bankruptcy is there is a misguided assumption that the process could be used to uh, impair and rewrite pension contracts. In theory, that's a valid uh, a statement. In reality, the politics are gonna make that next to impossible because the city has to be willing to do that, which jeopardizes its relationship with police and fire retirees and its residents. So the, the takeaway here, when you think about all of that is what should be happening with municipals that are in trouble is the same thing that should be happening on the private sector in terms of clear and open communications with the bondholders, clear and open communications with the employees and other creditors and the retirees and the challenge we had in California is that for years and years, it has always been a question of, I'm only going to tell you what you think, I think you need to know to get to a new contract, new collective bargaining agreement. And 
many times that turned out to not be entirely accurate. So there is a culture of not trusting the information being provided, which is what causes a lot of problems on the back end. So on my clients, the bondholders, I'm sort of don't wait for the municipality to open up the conversation if you know you're going to have problems. And the surveillance groups with the bondholders, the bond insurers are fabulous. And most of the time they know on some level before even the municipality knows what's happening in terms of financial stress. And historically, they have not been super on top of talking to decision makers that could help address the problem. So it needs to be raised from the people that have the skill set because municipalities, this is not their day job. Um, and then on, on the flip side of that, the municipalities, I am always saying get your financials and your cash flows in order and get a third party financial advisor to be able to vet those for you because then when you present them to your bondholders, your lenders, your employees, your retirees, there's somebody else that said this information is is accurate and you know we reviewed and helped the uh, city compile it. Um, starting with that level of credibility will change the dynamic of the discussion. All right, thanks. So what uh, w- what about chapter nine, uh, the use of that? Yeah, I think that, that while a lot of people responded pretty uh, aggressively and vehemently that they didn't want chapter nine, I think the uh, Senator McConnell was wise to raise it, even though it was a lightning rod. And the reason is simply this, that if the federal government is going to be providing aid to states as a result of financial stress caused by COVID-19, that aid needs to be used for that purpose and not to pay legacy uh, debt and obligations, uh, which includes pensions. And one of the benefits of having this conversation is, okay, the state uh, bankruptcy is not really a viable option because of constitutional limitations and the fact that the states are not gonna use it, uh, as many governors have already indicated, but it does uh, create a situation where incentives uh, could be put in place by the federal government to get the states to take a much harder look at how they're dealing with their pension obligations. Great. Uh, Carol, thank you so much. This has been uh, really helpful, um, taking us through both uh, pre-petition and and post-petition in these very uh, uncertain times. Um, I really appreciate it. I know our subscriber base really appreciates it. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Thanks. And uh, back to you, New York. Thanks. And thank you for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the site media page, iTunes, or SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe, and we'll see you next week.